Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. So tonight we're actually wrapping up our Luke series uh, for the summer. Uh, We are not finishing the Gospel of Luke. We'll be starting up next week, I believe, back in uh, 1 Samuel, which we had begun uh, earlier in the year. But I finished tonight with uh, a parable, uh, a difficult one, uh, one that I've wrestled with for years, and it was an occasion for me to study it and better understand its implications as we uh, come tonight to, to look into it. And uh, in this parable, we're reminded that Jesus was not shy uh, to talk about money and use the topic often in his parables. Uh, and here, um, no doubt, with the, the perplexing parable of the, of the shrewd uh, manager. And uh, this parable uh, begs the question, reminds us, or shows us what what to do with money and, and, and how we use it and our worldly possessions is the great revealer of our hearts. So tonight, I believe we learn by way of negative example, by taking a warning that helps us to evaluate and, and align our priorities to see if whether they are in tune with God's purposes uh, gained with a, an eternal perspective. Please follow as I read Luke 16, 1. To verse 13. Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him, and he said to him, What is this I, that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Because my master has taken the management away from me. I am not strong enough to dig. And I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is, is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is God's word. Father, once again, I would ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
During our first year of marriage, I recall that my, my wife and I both bought ourselves designer sunglasses, uh, costing at least $100 or more each. And uh, we were young, no kids, both had jobs, uh, living free and carefree. But it's only in hindsight that I can look back and see how, how wasteful that was. And I'm sure there are many other ways that we wasted our wealth in our early years. And over the years, I would hope that we have become less wasteful and have become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. I believe what Jesus calls unrighteous wealth begs a question for us. What do we do with our wealth in this life? And I believe that there's two main points in this parable, followed by a commentary. Basically, don't waste it. And secondly, don't worship it. Firstly, God expects us to steward our resources properly. And then secondly, we have one master who is worthy of our worship. Well, like many of us today, I assume that the people in Jesus' day were intrigued with rich people. Uh, Not many of us are rich, and uh, not many of us know people who are extremely wealthy, but Uh, Jesus often used rich people in his parables, perhaps to get people's attention, uh, to build intrigue. But in this case, there's a rich man who has a manager who is caught wasting the rich man's possessions. Now, it doesn't tell us what he was doing. We can only speculate as to how he was extorting or wasting or overspending. Uh, But we do know that Jesus is using the same word for wasteful that he used in the prior chapter, Luke 15, the story of the the younger son, the prodigal son who squandered his father's inheritance off in the far country. And so on this occasion, the rich man calls his manager out. He demands an accounting for his spending. This is a, a owner who is about results, who will not turn a blind eye to the exploits of his own manager. Now, he could have ignored it. He could have concluded it wasn't worth it. But this rich man knows that a little spoil can ruin the whole batch. Corruption spreads and infects and can wreck the whole enterprise. Now, the manager knows he is caught. He cannot weasel out of it. And he realizes that his white-collar cush career is over. His reputation is ruined. He's like a CPA whose license has been revoked, a lawyer who's been debarred, a pastor who is now deposed. And so the manager takes inventory of himself, realizing he can't dig, he can't do blue-collar work, and he is too ashamed to beg. So in his desperation, he comes up with a scheme to prepare himself for the unemployment to come. He quickly and shrewdly calls his master's debtors to him and rewrites the terms of repayment. The man who owed 100 measures of oil, he sits down and rewrites it, cuts it in half at 50 measures of oil. The one who owed 100 measures of wheat, they rewrite it to make it 80. And this was no insignificant sum of money. This was 1,000 gallons of oil and at least 1,000 bushels of wheat, at least a year's wages for uh, the common laborer of that time. And so what is the manager doing? He, he, he is using the rich man's wealth for his own favor, to make friends who will owe him 
and perhaps help him when his time of need arrives. Now, perhaps what's most perplexing and most surprising about this parable is how the rich man responds. When Jesus tells his audience that uh, when the rich man learns of this this action by his manager, rather than be angry or condemn the manager, he actually commends him. He's, He's impressed with the shrewdness of his own manager. This manager has been shown to be dishonest. He has compromised his integrity, but he's clever. He's committed to his own self-interest. He takes bold and decisive action to prepare for the hard times that are coming. And Jesus makes the point that worldly people are more shrewd with their own kind than the sons of light. And I think in in broad and general observation, this is very true today as well, uh, that the world uh, is better at marketing sin than God's people are at marketing the gospel. Uh, People uh, of the world, people who are unchristians, are better at, at spreading their truth, their worldview, oftentimes than believers are, in spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, as businesses have taken their products and services worldwide and cover the globe with their online services and their products, and you know, Coca-Cola has been, Coke is around the world and has been for 40, 50 years or more. But there are still many unreached places with the gospel. You know, there's still some 6,000 unreached people groups in the world. So, so worldly people have spread their influence in some ways better uh, than the followers of Jesus Christ. Looking back on the 19th century, missionaries who would travel from Europe to the far reaches of the globe, they, they would travel on uh, the, the trading companies, the Dutch and the British and the French trading companies. They would hitch a ride to, to follow the business routes and business trades uh, to help spread the gospel to unreached peoples. And so I believe Jesus is telling us to learn to learn from worldly people. Just as the manager made for himself friends with his master's wealth, so you and I need to make friends with our master's wealth, with the wealth and the goods and the resources that he has entrusted to us. And that we need to use it well before it runs out. And so that we may make friends who will receive us who will welcome us into eternal dwellings. So use your worldly wealth to make everlasting friends, Jesus is telling us. Now, notice Jesus is not commending dishonesty. Uh, He's not upholding the manager's specific actions as commendable or uh, something we should follow. But rather, we should prepare for eternity with the zeal and the earnestness of like the manager who is facing his unemployment as he's prepared for his days of want and need. Time is running out. Now, this manager was only facing joblessness. You and I will face the end of our lives and be called to account by the master for how we have handled the resources, times, and opportunities that he's given us in this short life. This passage is a humble reminder that all that we have 
we will leave behind. You cannot take it with you. Give while you live. And your use of money, if you would follow Christ's faith, you ought to reflect your eternal priorities. In reflection upon this passage, St. Augustine wrote, Why did the Lord set this before us? It is not because that servant cheated, but because he exercised foresight for the future. He was ensuring himself for a life that was going to end. Would you not ensure yourself for eternal life? Now, the point here is not that you can buy your salvation. That would be false. We enter heaven by faith alone in Jesus Christ, the one who paid our debt, who secured our passageway into glory by his sacrificial substitutionary death in our place. But it's our actions, it's our deeds, it's our call to stewardship in this life that ought to be a reflection of our faith and hope in Jesus Christ, the reflection of a heart transformed by the gospel. And so wasting wealth on worldly possessions and worldly ways while failing to make kingdom investments is a demonstration of misplaced priorities. British uh, pastor, uh, Anglican uh, Bishop J.C. Ryle said, a right use of our money in this world from right motives will be for our benefit in the world to come. It will not justify us It will not bear the severity of God's judgment any more than other good works, but it shall be evidence of our grace, which shall befriend our souls. The shrewd manager did not waste his opportunities, and neither should we. Mammon, as is referenced here in this passage, is everything you have that you can't take with you. And the Bible would exhort us to spend it wisely before we have to leave it all behind. Specifically, to spend it wisely making friends. Making friends who will be waiting to welcome us in eternity. Your gift to natural disaster victims in the efforts of emergency relief. Members of distant tribes who hear the gospel through supported missionaries. Unrighteous wealth given to deliver trafficking victims and drug addicts rescued by ministries supported by our worldly wealth. This concludes international students, immigrants and refugees whom you take time to befriend or come alongside and support other workers who welcome them and introduce them to the gospel of God's grace. These friends in eternity could also be people who come to faith through our radio broadcast, through a church plant that we support by our financial generosity. In China, there's one missionary for every 700,000 people. In India, there is one missionary for every 2 million people. It's the same in Vietnam. One for every 2 million. Bangladesh and Pakistan has one missionary for every 200,000 plus persons. How will we in our generation make a contribution, make an investment, help change the game so that more and more of these people may be in heaven with us and welcome us into 
eternity. Jesus goes on in his commentary in verses 10 through 12 and continue on this theme of not wasting our wealth, to not only use it to make everlasting friends, but also to not dismiss small investments, to not make light or turn aside from the little things. Verses 10 through 12 seem to say, be faithful with the little things that God may entrust you with greater things. In our home, it's been our practice to give an allowance of sorts to our children when they are young. Uh, to help teach them the importance of tithing and saving and proper spending. But as they get older, when they get jobs of their own, we cease that practice as they enter into uh, the teenage workforce. And of course, in an entry-level position, uh, they are not put in a supervisory role right away. They are an entry-level role, and they have to prove themselves faithful. They have to, to kind of earn the trust of their employer, like my daughter did earlier this summer when she became a supervisor at Rita's Italian Ice. It's the way you kind of work your way up and get, are given more responsibility by an observant employer. The employers, where the employers want to see that you show up on time, that you, you finish all your duties before clocking out, that, you, that your cash register is accurate at the end of the day, that, that you have a professional manner with the customers and with your uh, fellow employees. However, if you're an employee who is caught cheating, lying, stealing, wasting time, disrespecting the boss behind his or her back, you will not last long. Jesus is like a business owner who is concerned with integrity, with reliability, like the parables of the minas and the talents. Jesus says, he who is faithful with little can be entrusted with much. But the follower of Jesus who is dishonest, who cuts corners, who makes excuses, his or her lack of character will be exposed. As the pressure of greater responsibilities reveals the cracks and weaknesses of a faulty foundation. In many ways, Jesus is saying that the worldly possessions and unrighteous wealth are like a test. Can you prove faithful with these things? And if so, you'll be entrusted with true riches in this life and in the life to come. The Bible promises rewards of various kinds. Perhaps there'll be responsibilities we have in heaven that will be a reflection of our faithfulness in this life. People who fail in just minor commitments should not be entrusted with greater responsibilities. Character is developed by the accumulation of small choices each and every day. Small compromises weaken such a foundation. John Wooden, the Hall of Fame winner of 10 NCAA basketball championships in the 60s and 70s, he would begin the practice season every year teaching his players how to put on their socks, how to tie their shoes to prevent blisters. And in that simple, small practice, he demonstrates that success in great things begins with faithfulness in little things. For us, may we not yield to temptation that erodes our personal integrity. 
Keep your promises. Fulfill your commitments. Finish what you start. The way to see what you would do with more is to see what you do with what you have. We are all using borrowed goods on borrowed time for this life. When the final verse, verse 13, the Lord makes his final point. Don't worship wealth. Money must be your servant. The Lord must be the master. Jesus makes the obvious point that no servant can serve two masters. He must pick. He cannot have divided loyalties. So how do we master money? Well, for starters, we need to stop making too much of it. We have to cease loving money and the things that it can buy. Not let it give you a false sense of security. The scriptures say that money itself is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money. That's a root of all kinds of evil. We live in a culture that entices us to love money, to love possessions, to breed more and more discontentment and to to engender the gimmies and the wantsies, to perhaps give us health and happiness and joy in this life, but we know it always fails. We need a detox from the world. We must stop going to the world's altars, bowing down to worship the almighty dollar. Only God is worthy of our worship. Only God can fulfill and satisfy the desires of our hearts. And only God can bring us into everlasting happiness. So I offer here three practical helps to master money. First, tell your money what to do. It's called a budget. We don't like budgets, but we have to do it. We must not let money tell us what to do. Money, handling money is like training a puppy or a young child. You have to discipline it to follow your rules and not yield to its tyranny to follow its rules. Remember what God said to Cain. Sin desires to have you, but you must master it. It's the same with money. We have to master, and really it's self-mastery. It's mastering so many of the desires of our hearts because money and the things of this world sink their talons and their roots deep into our hearts, and we have to uproot it and yield ourselves to submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So tell your money what to do. Secondly, get out of debt and stay out. Proverbs says, The borrower is slave to the lender. You find yourself racked up on debt, home, car, school debt, credit cards. Get on a disciplined plan and pay it off because debt will strangle you spiritually, relationally, emotionally. Thirdly, tithe. I'm a firm believer that the tithe is one of God's remedies to help, help deliver us from the tyranny of materialism. That this call of obedience is actually to set us free, to, to curb our fleshly desires to acquire more and more things. Of course, it's difficult when you're in a situation of little income or have strained expenses. My wife and I remember our, our years in seminary where I was only working half-time in school full-time, and we made a commitment at that time to tithe. It wasn't much, but it was enough for us to demonstrate faithfulness to the Lord and seeing God's faithful to us 
to get us through by the skin of our teeth in those three hard, difficult years. You know, if someone is not willing to tithe on a modest income, I seriously doubt they'll be willing to tithe even if they won a million dollars in the lottery. He who can be trusted with little can be trusted with much and vice versa. If you can't be faithful with little, you won't be faithful with much either. But if we're disciplined to tithe and be generous givers to the Lord's work, at whatever income level you're at, we may grow in the grace of giving as the Lord blesses us with increase. And lastly, the Lord must be our master. We need to remember who we are working for. There are some people who like to be their own boss. But believers should remember that we are never our own boss. We are always working for the Lord, regardless of where our income or paycheck comes from. Now, we work for our money. We work for our food. But Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. The Son of God knew riches and glory that we cannot possibly imagine. But he laid it all aside for a season to bear our burdens, to suffer indignity, to endure the punishment that you and I deserve. As Paul wrote, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. If your goal in life is to get rich, be warned. It can make you miss the way to fall into a trap, into destruction. But if your goal in this life is to glorify God, maybe he will make you rich, and maybe he will not. But he guarantees eternal riches to those who remain faithful to the end. Serve him who first served you. Yield to him who yielded to the cross for your sake. Trust him who entrusted himself to the will of his father and surrender to him all authority over all your possessions and the use of your unrighteous wealth. Be faithful with what you have. Make generous, sacrificial investments into God's kingdom enterprise. Submit to him who promises to be faithful, who has gone ahead to prepare a place for you and I, who will raise us up to be seated with him in the heavenly places, joined by many friends, those whom we have helped to be there with us, extending the gracious invitation of the gospel that welcomes all who believe. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are amazed that you invite us to be a part of your kingdom enterprise, to use what little we have to help invest in your eternal purposes. And we pray that you might use us, that you might cause us to increase, that we might be generous and faithful in partnering uh, with many ministries here and abroad uh, to see many friends, to many, many friends come to faith in Christ and enter your glory. We pray that you, your kingdom would come, that all the nations we reach, and that Jesus Christ would be Lord of all. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. 
The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.